Hi, I'm Charles. If you don't know me, I have the opportunity to read the scripture reading for this morning out of Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that, that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the king of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or of the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned you your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are, of, who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke to them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Thanks, Charles. Hi. It's good to be with you guys today. My name's Dawson. Hi. That's my son right there. He's not in Cornerstone yet. That's our youth uh, group, but he is here with us. Hey, buddy. Um, if you haven't met me, I am a dad and a husband. I'm one of the servant leaders. Uh, I get to be 
freed up by this church to spend my time equipping the saints for ministry. Uh, we believe um, that uh, God has a vision for this city, and that's that every man, woman, and child might have an encounter with the risen Jesus, and he's going to do that through his body, through his soma, as, uh, as Kobe said. And um, it's my joy to get to be uh, somebody who spends a lot of my time during the week just reminding us of that. And my joy to get up here and be one of the people that uh, lead us to submit to Jesus' word. So we're in Daniel, and we're going to talk about living faithfully in exile, about being a people that are a beautiful resistance in, in this world. And this is something that I think a year ago or so I told the elders that I um, would love us to spend a season in. So I've for a year been prayerfully sitting in this. And um, because I get to, I'm going to do something really quirky and ask that you guys would uh, picture this little uh, scene of historical fiction that I made up. Okay? So 2,600 years ago, picture a poet, singer, songwriter, maybe, similar to Brittany. This is, a, this is a dude, most likely, sitting in a beautiful garden somewhere, um, but somewhere specifically about 60 miles south of present-day Baghdad. And in uh, one hand, likely, because he's an artist, whatever the equivalent is to the single origin roast coffee, because that's what artists do. And uh, in the other hand, something, whatever the equivalent to this Gibson is, um, I think they called them liars with a Y, a liar, like a harp, right? Um, and it's a beautiful scene, like I said, by the stream, hanging gardens, and um, a place where artists often, you know, seek out the space to inspire. But he's definitely not in uh, top 40 writing mode. He's not about to write a Taylor Swift pop thing uh, because he has been dragged from his place of belonging to a strange foreign land. And he hits those strings and he says, he starts with these lines, we have this, this is not fiction, in Psalm 137, he says, by the rivers, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we, when we remembered Zion. Like I said, that's historical fiction, but the poet is not. There was a real poet who was dragged from Jerusalem, that's Zion, just another, another name, found himself in exile, and in the, the middle of this gut-wrenching song, this gut-wrenching poem, he, he puts this haunting line. I'm going to hold up for buddy. This haunting line. Again, that's my son, so be kind to him and to my wife. Here's the haunting line in the middle. Put it up there. How shall we sing the song of the Lord in a strange land? How am I to sing God's song in a place that has forgotten God? 
And we're going to contextualize this. We're going to talk about being a people of beautiful resistance to coma. But this morning, I, I th- literally like a few hours ago, I thought, you know what? Before we do that, I just want to say some of us might be coming here. I never know. I, I already bumped into a few of you know what your weekends were like. All of us in some ways m- could quickly identify an area, a way of our life in which we feel like we're in a strange land. We feel like we're in exile. We feel like we're in a place we don't want to be. Maybe you feel exiled in your family right now. Maybe you feel exiled in a relationship. Maybe you feel exiled career-wise. Maybe you feel exiled in your own neighborhood. Maybe you feel exiled in church, the family of God. And I want to say that this, this poet asks a question that we need to have the courage to ask, how, how can I sing the song of the Lord in this place of exile I found myself? And the book of Daniel is going to be a blueprint for us finding the answer to that question, okay? So pray with me and then we'll, we'll open up Daniel and ask Jesus to orient us to himself. Jesus, thank you that you are a friend to foreigners. You, are, you give a place to those who are displaced. Um, and ultimately, you want to bring us all home to be with you for all eternity, but starting now. And so I ask that even today, you would, you would meet us. You'd be with us. You're glad to be here. And we want to check in and recognize that that's amazing that we get to ask you to show us your heart. Amen. So Daniel is exilic literature, okay? If you're familiar um, with some of the stories of the Bible, uh, it's not the only exilic book. Um, There's other prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. There's the story of Esther. These are exilic pieces of the Bible. It means that there are seasons, there are times in the history of the family of God, specifically starting with Israel. There are times when the Israelites are taken from their place, a place from that city of Zion, a place where the culture, everything in in their life, the government, education, medicine, the arts, the culture they're swimming in assumes this foundation of belief in Yahweh God, and it's just like in everything, but they're taken out of that place, and they're put in a different culture. They're put in a culture that is hostile to God. How do I live under Yahweh God, if I'm suddenly displaced in a culture that's hostile to God, how do I continue to sing the Lord's song in, in a culture that's lost the song, has no reason to sing it? And if you've been paying attention lately, like reading the news, scrolling your device, you know, going outside, then maybe you've noticed that that's a pretty relevant question for us today, for us Tacomites. Gig Harborites and, and others. Um, now, America, England, um, f- 
for a long time, what I just described about this God-fearing foundation kind of just put into the veins of all the, the pieces of culture, all, of, all the ways of life, that, that was actually true for a long time, for like decades, hundreds of years. So if you'll give me permission to kind of nerd out for like probably four and a half minutes, okay? And we're going to do some, you don't have to take notes, there'll be no quiz on this at the end, but um, it's a recent development in our history, like very recent, that the church is finding themselves in a situation, in a place where they're trying to navigate how do we sing this song in, in a culture that's hostile to God. That, that's actually a recent development. Uh, let's, let's go back um, about uh, over a thousand years. There in, in uh, the year 313, there was an edict in Italy in the city of Milan where for the first time, all of these scattered uh, Jesus followers were given permission by the emperor, by Constantine, to worship publicly, okay, in the year 313. For 300 years, they were underground, right? They were... Um, in an upper room, not long after Jesus rose from the dead, there was 120 disciples. It's a little, tiny rebel alliance, if you'll allow me to sprinkle in some Star Wars again. <laughs> little rebel alliance hiding out in this upper room. And over 300 years, they scatter, they stay undercover, but they multiply and Here's the thing that happened in 313. The reason the emperor, most likely, this is what I believe, this is what a lot of scholars believe, the reason he, he said, hey, Christianity is good, is because at that point, probably 53% of the Roman Empire were like professing Jesus followers. So I'm not going to judge his heart. Jesus is the only one who can truly judge Constantine's heart. But to me... And to others, it looks like it's just a publicity stunt or like a political move saying, oh, it's like this, is, this little rebel alliance has turned into the majority. And so, um, and you've heard me talk about this before, but it's that shift when actually the movement kind of breaks down. You have state and church um, brought together in a way that uh, gets very confusing and... But for a thousand years, we were in an era that um, is known as Christendom, where there's this culture in which God, the belief of God, is not just accepted, but is kind of foundational. And the last two are, um, so I told you four and a half minutes, and I'm taking more than that. Uh, that starts breaking down. I, I have more notes on this. I'm going to speed up. We talk about this often, but the Enlightenment, 17th century, 18th century, that starts breaking down. But really, if you look at American history, it's really not just the last three decades where it's like that breakdown has super sped up. It's super sped up. Um, John Tyson, author and pastor, describes three major shifts 
that have happened just in the last three decades in terms of, uh, you can put that next slide up, in terms of Christianity in the West. Okay, we're talking about the West, we're talking about Tacoma, uh, Christianity in the, in the global South is a whole different story, beautiful story, one we can learn a lot from. But in the West, in the last three decades, here's the three shifts. He says that Christianity has moved just since like the 80s from a majority, uh, from a center to a friend, to the fringe. It's moved from majority to minority. Again, we're talking Western uh, cities and then well-respected to disrespected. Another uh, one of, uh, of, of John Tyson's peers, if that's vague language, he describes it this way. He says that there's been a shift in the last three decades, a guy named John Mark Comer down in, in uh, in Portland, not too far from here, where he says that Christianity in the West has gone from the last three decades from credibility to weird to hostility in terms of the posture, the culture. What, what does he mean by that? Well, again, in the 80s or 90s, there was Christian orthodoxy held a lot more water, okay? There was, um, you could have pastors cited in the Seattle Times and not over controversy. Like it was like, oh, here's a helpful voice, okay? Um, then there, the shift starts happening where it starts losing credibility, but it's not in a hostile place yet. It's just in this middle, like weird phase. Like if you, you bump into somebody who's a Jesus follower and holds to Jesus's view of sexuality, like a monogamous, all of life, man and woman view of sexuality. And so in, in this middle stage, when people like encounter that, they're like, oh, really? Oh, that's, that's very, that's, I didn't know. It's kind of it's like, oh, it's like encountering a, a unicorn. Like, I didn't think you existed any, anymore. Like, um, and then, though, in the last 10 years, it shifted from, oh, weird, this is an anomaly, to there's, there's hostility um, towards that, to where having a universal morality or having a view of sexuality is now honestly more considered like the moral low ground in cities like Tacoma. There's that, that's, that would be seen as, as, um, as just a bigoted view, okay? So all, all I'm trying to say in four and a half minutes, that's actually much more like seven or eight, is that we're not living in Kansas anymore. We're, in, we're living in Babylon. We live in Babylon. Now, with that shift, with that shift of suddenly finding out, oh, I'm, I'm living in Babylon, there's two instincts for the Lord's people. Instincts that happen in me and you, and that always happen in the history of the Lord's people. And the instincts are this. I drew it this way with that line down the center slide, Andre. Um, the instincts are to either, should be the next one, to either assimilate or separate, okay? To either just give in, to, the, to Babylon or to get out of Babylon, to, get, to give in to the culture or get out of there. These are the gut instincts of the people of God unless they are gripped by the story of God, find guidance in the word of God, are empowered by the spirit of God to live a third way, a way of a beautiful resistance. 
And this is the story that Daniel leads us into, that very first verse. You guys can definitely keep your Bibles open. I'm going to like keep hopping in and out. We had a topical series this summer, which I thought was super helpful, but we were not in one passage. Today we get to be in one passage. You can get in Daniel. Actually, that's not entirely true. We will hop around a little bit. But open Daniel 1. And the first verse says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So besieged in Babylon overnight. We just talked about the shift that happened over three decades. This is a shift that happens overnight for these people. The people of Israel experience that shift overnight, majority to minority, center to the fringe, well-respected to disrespected. And a little bit of history. It's totally okay that you didn't know this. I didn't know this five days ago. Babylon uh, came into Jerusalem and defeated Jerusalem twice. This is important to know. It's helpful to know. Um, the king of Babylon eventually will come. He'll level Jerusalem, level the temple. And we can read about that in books like uh, Nehemiah, Ezra. But right now, we're actually 10 years bef before that at least. And this is the first time that this king comes in. He doesn't level it. What does he do? He takes out, out of this people, he takes 10,000, that's a small number when you're looking at a country, okay? Just 10,000 of who? He takes out the young professionals, the young future leaders, those that are the, the future of uh, education, the arts, um, the government leaders, and what's his strategy? It's, it's actually a brilliant strategy. His strategy is to Babylonize them. His strategy is to assimilate them into their way of thinking. It's, it's a brilliant strategy. Take the young ones and shape them, okay? So they're taken, and it's in moments like these when there's big shifts that the prophets of the people of God need to stand up and make some statements, correct? Like say they need to speak into this. And Jeremiah is one of those prophets. And when you look at Jeremiah's letter, Jeremiah is, is writing at this same time, at that first wave of exiles. Um, and Jeremiah makes sure that we know that he's not the only prophet speaking to this. And if you find Jeremiah 28, it's kind of funny to me that he does this. He just, he, he throws a peer under the bus. The, Jeremiah 28 in your Bible will probably be called something like the false prophecy of Hananiah. He just like, here's the title. And what happens is the king of Babylon brings the Israelites into to a new land and they're all outside of the city. And now the question is, what are we going to do? And the prophets get up and say, this is what we should do. And the false prophet, Hananiah, says, my paraphrase this, don't go into Babylon. Stay out of that city. This is, this is the pagan city. You need to stay out of it, pray against it, pray that God will destroy the city and just wait it out. That's his prophecy. And Jeremiah, who gets to write a letter that ends up in the Bible, says, false. That is not what we are going to do. That is not the, Lord, the word of the Lord in this moment. And in Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah says this, false. 
Hananiah's word is not true. This is the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens, eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give daughters in marriage. They, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are amongst you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream. He's talking about Hananiah again. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them declares the Lord. So for Hananiah, Hananiah in this moment, the false prophet, he sees it as, he just sees this dichotomy. Here's, here's, what we, here's the problem. Either we separate and resist or they're going to assimilate us. Those are the options. But God, through Jeremiah, says, I refuse to let you believe that your only options are assimilate or separate, to give in or get out. No. I'm asking you to move into the city, to go into Babylon, and to live distinctly, to be a beautiful resistance. He says, I want you to pray for this city, not against it. Reminds us of Jonah, doesn't it? We spent a time in, in, in Jonah not too long ago. Jonah praying against the city. He says, no, I want you to pray for the city. Seek the shalom of the city. Seek shalom, this idea of the city becoming whole, better, because you're there. This is third way. Uh, I, was, I, was, I knew we were going to be talking about this, and I thought, I need to come up with some like, real practical examples. And sure enough, this last week, there were three moments where I was like, okay, here's practical, a practical uh, example of life in Babylon. The first was I got the privilege of meeting with a business owner and his wife, and um, we spent some time. And at the end of, some of you were in that meeting, a few of you, I said, man, it is really difficult as a son of God to run a business in Babylon. It really is. Uh, I won't get into the weeds, the weeds of it, but uh, there's strong temptation to either assimilate or to separate. To assimilate just being like, you know what, I'm going to keep my convictions, you know, private and over here. We're not going to let that influence this. Or to separate, you know, there's some businesses take the policy of like, you know what, I'm just going to, it's too tricky to navigate this. I'm only going to hire Jesus followers for my business. That's, that's fine. You can, you can do that, but that's a way of completely separating instead of creating a business in Babylon where people can encounter the people of God. Then I think it was the following day, I got to go to a very fun rooftop birthday party on, uh, there's a famous a little venue down in downtown Tacoma called Alma Mater. And it was my buddy who's a guitar player, played in different bands, and he was celebrating his 40th birthday, and it was really fun. There was like 20 artists from like the whole Puget Sound uh, area who like, I, I, I uh, told my friend, man, you know how many Spotify listens are represented right here? And so, but it was also artists often come in or are brought up in the church and have a difficult relationship with the church. And I was sitting there with some of my musician buddies and we were, it was a fun night, but it was also a grieving night because it is very difficult to be a prophetic voice in the arts 
to stay distinct, to stay faithful. It's, it's very difficult to be an artist in Babylon. And the third, the third moment was just a few days later. I dropped off my oldest kid, seven-year-old Vivian, uh, to a public school just a few uh, a mile north of here. And I leaned over to uh, a, few of our, a few of us were there together, and I said, well, we just dropped our kids off at Babylon Elementary. And, and I felt it. I felt the tension. I'm going to come back to this a little bit. Our second, by the way, is in a private school uh, that is run by Jesus followers. We'll come back to that. But living in Babylon is, is really tricky. The temptation um, to either assimilate or separate is strong, is very strong. And I wish that I could say that there was like a textbook that we had, like there was like an appendix. Oh, considering sending your child to school and at the end of our Bible, there was like notes from Paul, like should I do private or public or how to run a business, a handbook for business owners, right? Mark, that'd be nice. But there's not. But we do have, we do have a story of somebody who navigates this beautiful resistance with the power of God and with wisdom. And that person is Daniel. And Daniel, he, he writes, as he's writing this story, two, in the second verse, four words popped out to me in this last season that are so important for us to, to start from as we, as we engage with this text this season. I read the first verse, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And then verse 2, the next four words, Daniel says, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Do you catch why that's really significant? And the Lord gave. We need wisdom to navigate these times. And the beginning of that wisdom is recognizing that God's providential hand is in every part of my story. Even when I find myself being in places I don't want to be. Even when I find myself in exile. Daniel, that first letter from Jeremiah was written for Daniel. That was his blueprint. But Daniel wrote this down for the second wave of exiles. Remember there were two? He wrote this down for all the exiles after him to fall, to, that are going to follow, including us. People that are asked to, to bow down in, in Babylon, to go to Babylonian universities, to have Babylonian neighbors, that are asked to eat Babylonian food or watch Babylonian Netflix shows. And for them... The writings of Daniel, for us, the writings of Daniel, to quote a guy named David Helm, the writings of Daniel are going to become a salve, an ointment for an open wound. It's the best bedtime reading available on the market for exiles. There is nothing like a good old-fashioned retelling of the events that happened to the first boys in Babylon that put steel in your backbone and reconcile you to being at home under occupied rule. In reading and rereading Daniel, these families in exiles, especially the children, would learn to call any place home, really. 
In doing so, they would gain the confidence and commitment so desperately needed to remain faithful and useful to God in an ungodly world. The point being, being a beautiful resistance when besieged by Babylon begins with these four words. When you find yourself in exile, a place you don't want to be, we can find solace in the words, it's the Lord who gave us this. It's the Lord who gives you your story, your place, your calling. It's not Nebuchadnezzar. He's not the, the prime mover. It's not the Supreme Court or Putin or Biden. It's not you are where you are right now, not just because of what your parents did or your spouse has done or your boss's choices. We talk a lot here in this family about grief and healing and, and healing from wounds. But today I want to remind us that the Lord gave is true in every circumstance. And the Lord gave are four words that can comfort us when we desperately need comforting. And four words that can bring clarity in a confusing word world. The Lord gave are four words that remind us that when everything feels lost, that when we're experiencing as God's people suffering or threatened, that it's not going to be the end of the story because God is an all-powerful God who will get glory, who will save his people, and he will give us wisdom to live courageously under his rule. So this starts, this whole story starts with this planting, this foundation, the providence of God. The providence of God uh, described, one of the most articulate descriptions is this from the Westminster uh, Catechism. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his unfallible foreknowledge and the free immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. That's rich. In Soma speak, we have shorthand for this. We, we say, God gots this. God gots this. So how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? First, to recognize God gave. That's his providence. There's two more spots where that phrase, and the Lord gave, pops up. When you're reading your Bibles, that's an important thing to notice. In a given section, it's like repetition. Oh, this is interesting. There's two more spots. Uh, you can throw up that slide. These two spots are two markers. Verse 9 and verse 17 also have um, this little phrase, the Lord gave or God gave. And each of those um, each of those like paragraphs talk about Daniel's temptation to uh, assimilate or separate. And we're, we're running a little bit. I texted the kids people that we need a little more time because we're running a little longer here. We're going to spend the rest of our time in these two little parts talking about how Daniel navigated these two um, temptations. So God gave uh, first, first part uh, Babylon has a strategy of taking these young leaders and assimilating them. Um, this is what his, the strategy looks like in shorthand. He, there's a strategy to uh, isolate Daniel and his friends, enculturate, integrate, and to give, to give them a, a new ID, if you will. Okay? 
and um, um, I'm going to pause and say, I have, I'm going to ask uh, Mark Tilden to pray for me because I have a lot more sermon that I wanted to preach and we don't have enough time. So I'm going to spend a lot of time figuring out what it is that I need to, I can go longer. Okay. Well, I'll still ask the Spirit to help me give me wisdom. But Mark, can you pray for me? Because uh, I, you don't need to hear everything that I thought I should say. And <laughs> okay, go ahead. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Mark. So have your Bibles open. Um, just I won't go through all these in the detail um, that I had prepared to, but I think sufficiently you, you look at those first seven verses and you see that there's this, this clear strategy the Babylonians have to, to assimilate Daniel. Uh, uh, in verse 3 it says that God commanded, um, then the king commanded Aspenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel both of the royal family and of the nobility. We're talking about these, these uh, future leaders. Use without, by the way, this is just like an incredible description of a person. Uh, if ladies, if you're like still single and want to like put in your bio in search of this kind of man, just copy paste this right here. Um, use without blemish. In, uh, of good appearance, so like, not just that they're like the future leaders, they're like the good-looking future leaders. Um, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. And they're gonna teach them uh, the literature and the language of the Chaldean. So the first thing that they do is they isolate them, they bring them out, of their community. And a lot could be said for that, but um, that's the first way to, to we, we often think that um, uh, there's a slippery slope that begins in the mind, people exploring different ideas, people, but my experience is no. The beginning of isolation away from the ways of God is when people slip away from being in community with the community of God. Like it's just, that's what happens. So the first thing they're going to do, okay, let's get these good looking, um, these very good looking smart guys, let's take them away from their community. So they isolate them. Uh, the second thing they do is they enculturate them. They're going to spend three years at, um, I couldn't choose, BCU, Babylon, ba- Babylon, uh, Babylon City University, or I thought HGC, Hanging Gardens College. They're going to spend three years there, and they are giving them um, this, this, they're re-educating them, not just to make them think like a Babylonian, but to make them become Babylonian. They have, um, they, yeah, I'm going to skip this. We're going to go to, to integrate it. They integrate them into society. They are, it says they're under the king's roof, so they're not allowed to go like Daniel and his, his three amigos to go and start this hippie, like, homeschool community. It's like, hey, we're in Babylon, but we're going to stay here. Like, they're not allowed. They're, they're integrated, day-to-day life. They're in front of the king. Four, they give them new names. New names in the Bible uh, is a big deal, okay? New names today would be a big deal, okay, if you, like come to someone and say, from now on, you are. So what do they do? R- real quick, these names, it's significant. If, 
If you know a little bit about Hebrew, you'll know that El and Yah are important um, uh, syllables because they're, they're, they're syllables that are part of God's name, okay? Now listen, I'm going to emphasize all the Hebrew names. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. These, these boys were named well. In their Hebrew uh, names, in that order, starting with Daniel, Daniel is God is my judge. Hananiah is the Lord shows grace. Mishael is who is like God. Azariah is the Lord is my help. All of their new names, you can guess. Bel to Shazar is Baal protect his life. It's like a new stamp. Your Baals. Shadrach, the moon god commands me. The moon god is your daddy now. Uh, Mishael, who used to have the name who is like God, now has who is like the god Aku. It seems like it's almost malicious. And then Abednego is servant of the god Nebo. And so this is not like, this isn't just like, oh, hey, you Israelite boys, your names are hard to pronounce. Let's give you new names. No, this is, you are, we're giving you a new identity. But it's funny. Daniel never in his writings refers to himself as Belteshazzar. And the other thing that's really funny that I, I found is that for a long time, scholars, they have these different, like, um, you know, uh, original pieces of manuscript, and they, they kept thinking that people were misspelling these, these other names, but it was so consistent that now scholar belie- scholars believe that Daniel intentionally didn't take the time to even spell those other um, pagan names right. He was like, belt whatever, Shazar, like, <laughs> like, he rejects it. It's very punk rock of him to do that. I just love, I just imagining these scholars like, bro, you know what? I think he's doing it on purpose. Like, so you don't belong to the world. You belong to Babylon. That was the intent, and that's the intent right here, okay? Daily, these guys are going to University of Babylon. They're sitting down and they, they do roll call and daily they're hearing, you don't belong to Zion anymore, you are Babylonian. And that's it. They, they accept the names. But there comes a point where they draw a line. And it's, again, I feel a little pressed for all the details here, but we get to this weird moment with food. There's suddenly Daniel resolved, verse 8, that he would not defile himself with the king's food. So for, for whatever reason, there's like different theories on this. It could be that Babylonian food's not kosher, very likely. It could have been that the Babylonian food's like sacrificed to Babylonian gods. That would be a problem too. We actually don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But the point is, for some reason, Daniel has the wisdom to navigate. Sure, give me another name, whatever. I won't even spell it correctly. But I am not eating your food. And he's able to do it. He's able to stop. And it, this is the second God gave. God gives him favor with this guy that's in charge of him. It's just, we, think about this for a second. Daniel comes in. He's like 
starting to show that he's not only a beautiful boy, but he's pretty smart. And now this guy that's in charge of him says, you need to eat this food. And Daniel says, no, I'm not going to do that. And this guy that's in charge of him doesn't kill him. He, like, has a dialogue with him, like, okay, but this is going to be tricky for me, man. Like, (laughs) if you're not going to eat the food, I could get in trouble. Daniel's like, okay, well, I care about you. Let's, let's, uh, Let's do a test. This is the first, like, uh, my goodness, Slovak word. Well, you do it when you have a test with like a, you have, what? no, you have like two, two, two sets. Yeah, the control group. Thank you. The control group. So you have, sorry, I grew up in two languages and I'll get stuck sometimes. Um, so you have this first control group test where Daniel's like, let's try this. I'm going to eat. I'm not going to have any meats. I'm not going to have, by the way, this is not like, for all the vegans here, like, yes, I told you, this is there's nothing to do with that, okay? Um, but he says, I'm gonna eat this way, because it doesn't even logically doesn't work that way, because at the end he says, like, test and see if we're fatter. Like that was his goal, to get fatter, not, not skinnier. Okay? So he does this control group thing, and sure enough, like it's it's okay. We're gonna see multiple times in this story. Um, that Daniel and his friends, they do this, and we, need, we will notice, especially in later times, um, that Daniel's not sure all the time. He's not sure the outcome of the test. The, his friends are not sure if they're going to survive the furnace. Daniel is not sure if he's going to survive the lion's den, but what he's sure of is that he can't eat the food because that would cross the line, and he's going to lead the rest to the Lord. And so... He does it. This time it works out well. But Daniel resolves. Daniel resolves. And I was talking this morning with our people. We were praying about this. Daniel's probably not even like old enough to drive in our country. This is a young man. And somehow he already has this clarity of resolve to navigate this situation really well. A brief other little glance of nerdy Bible history. Daniel grew up under the rule of a certain king named Josiah. And if you read this part in 2 Kings, like 22, 23, somewhere in the 20s, it's Josiah's reforms. Daniel grows up with, when he got lucky with the one king that's like good for like 100 years where Josiah is leading these reforms, and there's this community that's investing into the youth. I was a part of a missionary um, movement in Eastern Europe when I was growing up called Josiah Venture, named after the king's Josiah, because they want to see this investment into the youth so that by the time Daniels go to the University of Babylon, there's already resolve, there's already formation taking place, and that these Babylonians calling them these different names doesn't do anything to them. So, because I get to, I'm going to ask us something, and Crystal's going to be really thankful. Uh, We, as a church, we're a small replanting church, and I was going to do the numbers, but I forgot. I'm sorry. But I think that generally, like, basically half of us are very small people, okay? And so, we are not a church that talk a lot about volunteering. We just talk about our identity. We're identity as servants. We're also identity uh, uh, of disciple makers. And we need to take the Josiah approach and raise Daniels so that by the time they go to the University of Babylon, whether it's at 18 or like my Vivian that we chose at 7, that they would be 
formed and that they could be a part of this beautiful resistance. And so my ask is that you would join Kobe in the cornerstone efforts and that you would, that really we see that basically everybody should be on rotation, including our elders, including myself, in serving uh, our kids and being a part of this disciple. It's not a, I shouldn't say should. There's like a lot of good exceptions. I shouldn't say should. But we want to be a community of disciple makers, okay? All right. That is going to be where I stop there. And then um, uh, last thing. I said there was one more God gave. The last God gave is in verse 17. As for these youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So, not only will God give us favor, give us a way to like um, not assimilate, he's also going to give us the wisdom. He gives us the wisdom to navigate culture, complex culture, okay? For Daniel, it's direct revelation, and including like dreams and stuff. But what's important this, this last piece talking about separation, often our instinct can be, like back to the, to the school thing, you know what, it's, let's just, it's not worth the, worth the risk, let's, let's separate. Daniel, right here, spent three years at the elite pagan university. There's later, there's gonna be multiple times where Daniel, it happens right here at the end, uh, verse 20. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters. How, are you, how can you be ten times better than these guys? That's not, Daniel's not, he's not given any sort of dreams at this point. He's literally getting in front, there's a lineup, and he has studied all of their stuff just like them, he knows how to say it, even though he doesn't believe it, just like them, better than they can. Tim, Tim Keller, when he talks about speaking in, into a secular culture, says don't criticize the culture unless you can articulate their argument better than they can. You need to be able to articulate the position to the point where they're like, yeah, 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 that's exactly, exactly. That is why I think that, that um, whatever, sexuality statement, okay? And only after you have that, that kind of foundation where Daniel is able to stand in front of the king and says, okay, you want to talk about magic? Let me explain. That, that's what happens. For three years, he doesn't get through school. He doesn't just like make his way and avoid and somehow he actually is able to understand their culture, their way of thinking, their literature. Okay. So, you can let your kids wear Harry Potter. Just be with them. Help them navigate it. That's, again, I'm trying to make short of my, my notes here. Um, but I will read this because this is articulate. The writer, this is from a guy named Trevor, Long, Trevor Longman. The writer of Daniel implies no objection to the study of polytheistic literature in which magic, sorcery, charms, and astrology played a prominent part, though these had been banned in Israel for a long time. These young men from Jerusalem's court needed to be secure in their knowledge of Yahweh to be able to study this literature objectively without allowing it to undermine their faith. 
Evidently, the work of Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Josiah, Habakkuk had not been in vain. In order to witness to their God in the Babylonian court, they had to understand the cultural presuppositions of those around them, just as the Christian today must work hard at the religions and cultures amongst which we live. Okay. So, back to running a business in Babylon, being a prophetic voice in the arts in Babylon, or school in Babylon. Don't give in to the separation mindset that says, I want it simple. Tell me if public schools are a yes or a no. It requires wisdom. Our, for, for our family, we got together with different families, and, and we have three different families that are commissioning our kids into public schools to learn and to be missionaries. It's very intentional. We had a fire pit prayer night. Our little Lulu, we don't think she's ready for, Babylon, for the University of Babylon yet. So we're, we're having her very intentionally go to a private school where we can help um, other people can join us and help forming her. And, and we don't know. We're just going to continue. Matthew over here is one of, one of uh, the fellow parents. We're going to continue to pray and ask for wisdom until we get there. Same for running a business in Babylon. And new every other area of life in Babylon. Okay. We're going to wrap up, but not before we mention the one last God gave that's important to land in. comes later. In the fullness of time, God will give his most precious gift. God gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him may not perish, but of everlasting life. And if and Daniel is hopefully going to be a helpful blueprint for us navigating Babylon in this next season, but it would be a huge shame if we didn't land here this morning. We need rescue from Babylon. We which truly are Babylonian, without rescue to begin with. And as the sovereign Lord allowed Daniel to be taken from the promised land into exile and sinful Babylon, so the Father sends his Son from heaven into this sinful world. Daniel was obedient with food and drink. Jesus was obedient in all things. And so... If you need comfort, we kind of started with comfort. We ended with comfort. Hear the words of the risen Jesus. If you feel overwhelmed by whatever your exile is, just as Daniel 1 was meant to comfort those exiles, those parents in Babylonian huts reading to their kids this comforting story of Daniel, Jesus has words for us. He says, do not be afraid, my little flock living in Babylon. Don't be afraid. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's our Father's good pleasure to help us right now live in his kingdom in the middle of Babylon. It's his pleasure. Okay. I'm going to pray, pray for us. And then... Uh, we are going to 
Brittany, I'm going to propose something, and you can resist beautifully, or you can uh, nod. I actually think um, that, that we should close with um, communion, that you could just play over us. Uh, we do communion in different ways. Today, because we're emphasizing um, the, the need for resisting together in community, I want to encourage you to go and find somebody and pray, thank Jesus uh, for his rescue. Um, but I'm going to kind of like commission us to communion and release us at the same time. So I'm going to invite you to the tables. Brittany's going to play over us. You can take communion together with a friend. But at the same time, I want to make sure that, we're, uh, that the parents are freed up to go get their kids, which you need to in the next five minutes. You have five minutes to do this first, okay? All right. Thanks, guys, for bearing with me. I, uh, I don't know. It was a very ple- pleasurable, joyful experience and also a little strange today. Felt a little fragmented. Uh, let me pray, and then you guys can come to the front, go to the tables, and find someone. If you're new here and don't want to do this, that's okay. And if you do, you can just find someone and say, hey, I'm new. I'd love to pray with you, okay? All right, Jesus, thank you the, for this family. I, um, I'm so glad to not just be a shepherd and pastor here, but be a member and to be cared for by this family. Thank you for a good day of being together. We pray that you would form us into a beautiful resistance. Pray that you would uh, give us uh, wisdom to live in in Babylon. Pray that we'd point to Jesus uh, in the way that we live, that uh, we wouldn't just be a resistance, but we'd be beautiful. And, uh, and right now we thank you and we're gonna remember um, what it cost you to rescue us from to rescue us from Babylon through going to the table and and eating this with our friends. I pray once again for our kids. Pray that they were discipled well today. They'd be ready um, when they are brought into King Nebuchadnezzar's court, whatever that means for them. We love you. Be with us.